Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live.
just uh, I think would would give you a little bit of a little bit of perspective um, on the young new tour. Um, so, as a as a point of reminder, we're starting for everybody. We are moving to the Diocese of Durham. Um, we hope to be done um, sometime by the year 2026. So, if you don't know who in Christ you are, or who in Christ 
in the Bible. Like, if you want to read the Bible, then you can know about every commandment that ever the exodus that's it so for a jewish person the exodus that's the commandment that is the clearest depiction of what god is so we get all wound up about david and sarah and all that that stuff's cool but we were they were bound in slavery for 400 years and god sent a stuttering is the story. So everything about who the Jewish people are, they read through that lens. Of course, see, when they talk about a Messiah coming, it's about liberation. And all of the parallels and the things that they read, in the same way God liberated them from Egypt, Jesus the Messiah is going to come and liberate us from oppression. That's the big thing. So this is all kind of wrapped up in this like
and he writes it almost intentionally beautifully, but almost like one of those gifts that Mary takes the words and unbelievably, and he reads it. I love that he just reads it. Like he doesn't say, and it freaked everybody out. Or um, the, the, the fishermen who are in small boats where they hear, heave their rows. Are you kidding me? Like he doesn't, he just drops it. He's like, oh yeah, it's just inside the boat. I mean, it appeared on the other side of the boat. And then moves on. Like everybody's back here going, what the heck? I just, this is a bigger, this is like six cents ending has nothing on this. It just leaves you going like, now I need to read the whole story again. He just did that, huh? You know? Well, you have like 15 years. If that's a spoiler at this point, it's on you. Okay? So Jesus gets in the boat, and it moves. And and this incredible thing happens. But interestingly enough, there's all kinds of loaded thinking beliefs that they would have used that we probably don't don't see because we're back here talking about eschatology and other spiritual parallels that we can talk about with like um, uh, weird type of like covenants of righteousness and things like that 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 would help you hide away the details of like the death and resurrection and like all that stuff right and it's all those but we are kind of missing some of the the symbolism and language that's there when we start there first john's text is pointing out a different kind of power this is just the beginning of his doing his doing his eschatology. But he's pointing out and he's giving a juxtaposition between Jesus and Caesar. Remember that John is not trying to set before us the story of Jesus. Right? We talked about that across the Gospel of John. The book of John is not a story about Jesus. By that time, the other three Gospels had been written. So John's not trying to give us a documentary to show us. John's not trying to do a history channel version um, of Jesus. John is telling us something else. And that by this time, John is trying to give us the story of a recreated Jesus. John is trying to tell us about a recreated Jesus who could actually inaugurate and show us. He's the only one that's doing this. And it's really, really important to understand that. Some of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John were actually called the Book of Signs. So before it was called the Gospel of John, it was called the Book of Signs. Because John's Gospel is the only Gospel that handles doing signs. So um, John's Gospel starts uh, with the, uh, uh, the wedding in Cana, which is the first sign. And he says, now this is the sign of Jesus. And then we go all the way to the last scene. So he's spiritually starting that version of signs. By the time he gets to sign number four, he's espousing nothing. But we know that he's given us, so is anybody familiar with like a legend that the bottom of some pie means something? Anybody here with that? If not, that's an Indian question. We'll tell you when we get back. Some of you that don't do that on a weekly class are raising your hands. Raise when I read that. Thank you, Kevin. Open your lips. Oh, lips. Cheesecake. R.I.P. Anyway, they do that now. It's Wave has, it has Cookie Monster. Wave has Cookie Monster boards for navigation. I'm telling you, this is amazing. So, it's not, it is a game changer. It's not that, right? It's, uh, I do wonder, I haven't used the DJ yet, but I'm wondering if when you get to your destination, if you can't find, if if all I do is win, it comes on automatically. Like Spotify, it starts playing, uh, no matter what, you'll go up. Make it through there. No. So, the idea of a legend on a map would be really important because if you 
of a downer, you have a regression, or what pains a legend needed to tell you, okay, this is something you need to look for to have to tell yourself how to die. Okay, so John gives us in the beginning the legend or the pain for the rest of the gospel by telling us the first sign is the second sign, and the third sign is our number. Interestingly enough, when we follow this out, John has seven signs, one for each day of creation, because John is really telling the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You go to the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's retelling creation, and each sign, so there's seven signs in John, there's seven narrations, and there's seven dialogues. Each of those follow the model of the seven days of creation, all of it leading to a garden where Jesus is raised from the dead. He's the only one that tells us that Jesus is raised from the dead in a garden. He's giving us the new garden, which starts with Jesus. So, this sign is sign number five. Even though it's not numbered, this is sign number five. Each of these signs aligns to a day of creation. Interestingly enough, side note, for those of you who care about numerology and geography and maybe Bible stuff like me, you find that day number five of creation is the day where God moved upon the waters and called forth out of the waters fish and every creation of the sea. Sign number five is Jesus walking across the water. But these guys were really, really smart. Like, really, really smart. Um, and so that's why we don't have to get stuck back here with the big fancy headwords and how to Bible it or to get doctorates over somebody who's coming into the fair and they do this. Because we don't have to do that. It's brilliant that this guy is learning. This is inspired by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. So, this is the reality that God moves in this way, and he's showing us a different type of power. He's demonstrating a different type of king. John is showing us another emperor. This is why the gospel writers, all, every single gospel writer, borrows from the titles used by Caesar. Every main source in the New Testament is one that they borrow from what the Romans called Caesar was called king of kings and lord of lords. Caesar was called prince of peace. Caesar was called almighty God. Caesar was called son of God. I know that's hard because we're looking back, but that's just the reality. So they weren't king. It was because we do things and we say, uh, you know, almighty God. You know, we just imagine that that's the name that we're just saying when when you know. It doesn't work that way. The gospel writers and chapters tell us that we belong to a kingdom. And they're subverting the earthly power of Caesar to say there's a new emperor in town. His name is Jesus. And so Jesus shows up on scene, and they start writing in this way. And I, I don't have to prove you that Rome wasn't a big thing then. Caesar's not really excited about being subverted. And so what happens is... Um, in our culture, it's really hard to catch on to how that would work, but all of this is trying to tell us, historically, this is what was going on at the time. It would have been like, imagine how loud it would sound to you, and how many people would freak out if you started calling Jesus Commander-in-Chief. That'd be weird, right? Like, that's 
But that's what it, this was like. Like we call, who was our introduction music? The Warriors, right? But it, that's what they're doing. They're saying, no, 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 no. There's a different kind of power that we experience. And it's different, it's a different type of kingdom. So what happened this year, this story of Jesus walking across the water would have made perfect sense to them because all of the earthly emperors demonstrated their power by being able to control water. In fact, there's a really interesting story. Has anybody heard of this emperor, Caligula? His name was Diocletian. Caligula, does that name ring a bell? No? So Caligula's greatest spectacle as the emperor of Rome entailed building flotation pontoons that went across uh, the Bay of Naples, the Napoli Bay, which was around three because they weren't big. It wasn't like he built a bridge, but you couldn't see them. And then he rode across them on a chariot while shouting, I am the one who walks across the water and provides you with bread. He literally only built this. He built this. He rode across it to demonstrate to the people how powerful he was because they were just over him. They didn't see him. And then they destroyed the bridge. It wasn't for the purpose of like, or infrastructure. It was purely for the sake of exerting power and in some way showing that he's God. So Jesus walked on the water and they would have immediately went, wait, that's what Jesus weren't like, you know, the in crowd. So Jesus always felt 
from the bottom. Jesus always works with the lame, the poor, the blind, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax collectors, the sinners, the outsiders, and the foreigners. If that doesn't change you, don't get it yet. It's, it, it's, it's going to change a person. That's Jesus' crossing. The prostitutes are Jesus driving the house. That's just the way it works. Because he understands that they actually have a leg up, up with the kingdom. Those who are the outcasts, the foreigners, the refugees, the immigrants, those who have no home. Those people have a leg up on getting what the kingdom's all about. Because the kingdom's not about what you tell. The people who are, who are empowered for power want to get the kingdom, and then you look through the lens of what are the powerless. The people who have nothing have nothing to do. So there's always been a bias from, from the bottom in the way of the kingdom. It is demonstrably those who are inside at the top crucifying the elders, the chief priests, the commanders, the law, the scribes, the Roman occupiers, shouldn't that tell us something really important about perspective? The people who have power are typically not on the top. This is something we have to think it through and re-scripture it well.
training to understand spirituality and the PhD in Scripture. I'm going to read that again, just because we read other scriptures that do that. Richard Rohr says, I would like to assert that the theme or thread, the line of liberation, is the largest purpose with God in spirituality and the truest way to read Scripture. The term liberation theology, for many of us, might actually have a negative connotation. It sounds like something heretical, heretical, or Marxist even, and certainly not biblical, liberation theology. We immediately go, what is that? When in reality, it's actually at the heart of the Judeo-Christian tradition. The Jewish and Christian tradition has been... uh, uh, and marks the tradition all the way from the beginning to the end. It is amazing how much Christianity has been able to avoid the obvious for so long. Probably because few of us read history from the top down and seldom from the bottom up, which is the recurring perspective of the Old Testament scriptures. So we have a tendency to read it from the top down. In the scripture, it's always about reading from the bottom so liberation theology is the, is a hermeneutic or a means of re- reading scripture that allows you to see what God is doing the whole time. We see the beginnings of liberation here as early as 1,200 years before Jesus with the enslavement of, uh, in Exodus of the Jewish people. Something divine happened that allowed a fresh group of Jewish people in Egypt to experience many levels of gradual liberation. The story, the story became the basic template and metaphor for the entire Bible. Did you hear what I just said? The Exodus story is the template for the entire Bible. The Exodus is both an inner journey and an outer journey. If our inner journey does not match our uh, and lead to an outer journey, we have no true freedom for what we would call salvation. That is what liberation theology is asking us to bring out. Moses is the historical character at the heart of the Exodus event and of the spirituality that came from that experience. Perhaps we forget that Moses is a murderer on the run, lonely and fearful, who experiences God's liberation and burns what is consumed. Notice that this event has nothing to do with formal religion. Moses didn't get invited to a church service. Moses experienced something in the middle of the wilderness that most of us would not associate with a religion of any kind. A bush burned and a voice was mad. That's creepy at best. So in this idea, God has never been a God that fit in the boxes of our religious ideals. God is in this way saying, that this has nothing to do with formal religion or moral or ritual requirements. What we would say is, if somebody were to say God will begin to speak, I think we've got it really, really backwards. I think God speaking leads us to salvation. The voice Moses hears from the burning bush immediately calls him to confront the Pharaoh and tell the people, uh, tell him to let the people go. Do you understand? So let me let me just give you this. You, you have to get this because it will blow your mind if you don't get this. Do you realize that what the standard or template or example becomes 
is every time you have a God encounter, it is designed to propel you to go speak to the powers that be that people that are bound should be let free. You encounter God in a spiritual way, and then you go live it in a tangible way of demanding that oppressed people are, are let go. That's the model. But why do you, so then, but we just want to keep having, what I, I'll do this, I think, is theophany. What a theophany is, is an encounter with God. Theo, God, encounter. Okay? So we just want to keep having theophanies. We just want to have God experiences. We want to show up in church and go off in the spirit realm and do all this stuff. And I love all that stuff. We need to do it. But if that's all there is, Moses would have just stayed in the desert and kept going, going back to the burning bush every seven days with Sabbath. He didn't. The model is clear. Moses goes to the burning bush, has one God experience, and immediately the mandate that is put in his heart is, let my people go. If that's not our mandate, then we probably haven't had a sufficient encounter with God. If an encounter with God doesn't lead us to want to see people liberated, we probably aren't getting what the encounter with God is for. It's just to make us feel good. And I'm sorry. I actually had somebody tell me this week, I came in here to talk about this and talk about some of the stuff that's going on in the border. You know what they said? Be careful. If you can touch people to feel better about themselves, you're not going to see them. Don't talk about anything that's hard. Or you've got to look at yourself in the mirror. People come to church to get better, not worse.
their personal rituals. And what happened was that most of the religious frameworks that happened existed in these societies. The religious systems created a need. So here's what happens. There's a real encounter. God does something. God liberates you. You feel an encounter with God. You have a burning bush experience, whatever you want to call it. There is a revival that happens. But then we as human beings start building containers for the water. So we start building pathways and roads and we say you have to pray like this and you have to do this and you have to read these verses and you have to say this step and all these things. Language around it. So we start to become systemic with what was mystical. It was experiential and could have no container. But we try to give it a container and it's well intended. But this is the same thing that the children of Israel did. This is why after Moses had a burning bush experience, the, the priestly people come along and they start coming up with, you can't touch dead bodies, you can't eat a, a pig, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, right? And I'm not saying that that's wrong in and of itself, but what happens is human nature will always choose pastoral over prophetic. Human nature tends towards comfort, and comfort is developed through systems. So here's, and that's not wrong in and of itself, but here's what happens and was wrong in my opinion. What happens is the religious systems that have been developed through the priestly law, you read like some other people, you read this and you got driven home by the, the priestly role of the Pentecostal church. And then we try to just really find out how to make it fit in. So the religious system created a need, okay? The need is you're separate from God. And then a mediator-dependent system that can show you how to get unseparated. The smartest thing you've ever is to create a need for something that you know you can sell them to fix for that need. I mean, if you can make it rain, the best thing to do is to build umbrellas. I mean, that's the way this works. So the pastoral system, the priestly system, the church system, the religious system starts and is predicated by the idea that you as a person are separate from God. You're born into sin, right? So then we tell them, but my system can be what? Keep you unseparated. You follow this way, you can get unseparated. So that idea is the idea that becomes pastoral, where there's pastors and pastoral and prophetic. Interestingly, the Jewish prophets come along, and Jesus, which is what Jesus is highlighting, so that's why after you have the law, you have the prophets who come along and say, no, 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 God's not interested in your sacrifice. Isaiah. Or you see Jeremiah saying these things about the house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Or you see Hosea and you see Sacrifices I do not require, but what I want is your heart. I mean, they're literally upending the whole system. That's the prophetic role. And so what happens is the prophets come along, and this is the lineage that Jesus is to. Coming a time in Jesus' life where he was called a true 
Lord has for you. Now, Hebrews comes along and says, you have to trust in the Spirit of God, right? But in Jesus' life, so many times when we try to trust in God, what does he always tell us? This man is a prophet. Because he's critiquing the system. He's showing this, that the gospel, as soon as the gospel of God stops liberating you, he stops becoming the gospel of God. So Jesus comes along and gives us this idea of what it means to live in this fashion. The connection is desperately needed and yet resented and avoided to this day. Most of history, the priestly and pastoral tradition, has been in control and has defined what religion looks like. This reason or version involves using fear and tribalism by depending on ritual and form. I would suggest that these are prophets or else most religion actually worships itself rather than God. Liberation theology might be new to us, specifically in the West, because in 1,700 years it has taken a shifter from the perspective of the empowered chosen class or the empowered Christianity had become the established religion of the Roman Empire, we largely stopped reading the Bible and just had more Jesus. Empire was not the problem. We just need more Jesus. Even our country, what do we call ourselves? We are a radically different country. We just need to become more. Why bother with it? There is no such thing as Jesus. There is no such thing as a
so once we were in positions of power and privilege, we couldn't read and understand many scriptures like the Sermon on the Mount. The one sermon to support now makes no sense as soon as you're in the posture of privilege. As soon as you're looking at other people like they're coming to try to get what's mine, you're no longer paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount. They want to persecute the church. Whoa. Because we have an empire in our empire, and we have collected the scriptures gave us little support or consolation. So we have a spiritualized approach to this. It is no longer a, a liberated message. It is a spiritual message. So it's no longer real people who are going from the um, um, fear-be-prison pipeline where mass incarceration is refused to oppress a certain ethnicity and groups of people. Do you realize that, that Native American women make up 0.3 of our population and they also make up 23% of our women's prisons? is all around us, and we have, right here, something that is supposed to be used to speak to that. But as soon as we are the ones in power, we have to make this spiritual, because it can no longer be about people who are oppressed being liberated, and sight coming to the blind, and people who have no health care access, and health care being cared for, and the poor having homes. It has to be spiritual. So now it's spiritually poor people, and now it's spiritually blind people, and now it's spiritually oppressed people, rather than just people who have to be. In the end, all humanity is connected by our desire for connectedness. We are searching for something that sustains. We are bound by a common compassion that our children must be fed and our families provided for. That common connection unites everyone, Muslim, Christian, atheist, Buddhist, Native American, it doesn't matter. Our babies need food and shelter. You cannot separate the gospel of the kingdom from a theology of liberation. But when scripture is read through the eyes of vulnerability, what we call the preference for the poor or the bias from the bottom always it becomes liberating and transformative. It gets us to hell. Scripture will not be used to oppress or impress. The question will no longer be, how can I reach the next guy? Pro. But the question will be, how can we all belong? That is the gospel. That's the gospel. So I encourage you today, as we look at this, we could have spent all kinds of really fun time talking about how you can walk on water too and how you can go home and fill your bathtub with Christ. But the, the reality of it is there's something happening here. And sometimes we have to repent that it may not be our initial feeling that we're called to the point of view that we think that I have to go where I want and I am not going to be able to see uh, my perspective of the world through the family of black people or the family of, uh, of, the, of the Chinese woman in line, or the family of the Chinese black person, or a Samoa, whatever it might be. Pick your family. So maybe the first question we need to ask is not their agenda. Why do they want more? And I think the answer is the same. How can we partner with 
so that they can be liberated to reflect who Jesus is. And once you see it in the scripture, you can't unsee it. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.